This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's our very first foray into Egyptian mythology. And we'll see that if it looks like a coffin, sounds like a coffin, and feels like a coffin, it's probably just a really cool gift that you should not be suspicious about at all. The creature this time is a very unpleasant roommate who eats your food without paying for it. He's extra annoying because he just so happens to have taken up residence in your stomach. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 78, The Master Namer. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Today, we're in Egyptian mythology, the most requested mythology I get for the show. Before I begin, I have to say that, compared to other mythologies I've covered on this podcast, I am definitely a novice when it comes to Egyptian mythology. That's why it's taken me so long to get to it. Today is just my adaptation of one particular version of the mythology. I've spent weeks researching it, but I'm sure I'll miss something. If I'm wildly off in an area, please send me an email at jason at mythpodcast.com. I'm very open to corrections. Anyway, like any good mythology, Egyptian mythology is interesting, fun, and kind of bloody. And we're just going to jump right in at the very beginning with Ra, the self-created sun god, doing a little self-creating. With a blink, Ra snapped awake. Also, he had blinked into existence. Hmm, wonder how that happened, he thought to himself as he floated in the white void of nothingness. Existence, he said aloud, after turning the word over in his mind for a bit. Instantly, he was no longer floating in a white void, but a slightly more colorful void. The blue, cloudless sky stretched above him, and the oceans below. Blue meaning blue, and a thin line beyond. Ra quickly caught on. If he named something, then it came into existence. Wait, Ra paused. If I name something, and it comes into existence, how can I name it if it doesn't yet exist. And thus, paradoxes came into existence. Ra tried not to think about it. It was probably best to not start breaking existence quite yet. Feeling warm, he wished the air moved a bit more than it did. He shrugged. I'll call that Shu. Immediately, there was a guy floating next to him. The strange man nodded and said that he was the personification of the wind. Ra grimaced. Shu was nice and all, but he could give you something a little bit more refreshing. Maybe some water to fall from the sky. Let's call that Tefnut, announced Ra. Call what Tefnut? Shu asked. Me, said a voice behind Ra. I'm Tefnut the Spitter. Oh yeah, uh, I make stuff whenever I name it, Ra explained to Shu. I'm still learning how everything works. And then he turned to Tefnut. Also, really? Tefnut the Spitter? It also means moist, Tefnut replied, as rain began to fall in the oceans below. That's not much better, Ra said. Also, why do you have the head of a lioness? Everyone watched as a lioness appeared in midair, and then immediately fell in the ocean and drowned. I should be asking you why I have the head of a lioness, don't you think? Tefnut the spitter suggested. Fair enough, Ra said. All right, everyone, I'm getting tired of floating here. Let's make some geb. That's, that's what we're calling land. Immediately, the waters receded, and the vast sands of Egypt surfaced in all directions. Oh, you know, on second thought, 
That all looks really dry. We need something to moisten things up a bit, Ra said. Tefnut the spitter motioned wildly at herself. In addition to you, of course, Ra said. Oh, I know. Hey, B. With that word, the sands parted below, and water bubbled from within the crevice. The Nile River was formed. All right, all right. We have the sky, ocean, land, river, wind, and, uh, rain, Ra said, shooting Tefnut the spitter a thumbs up. Looks like we have the minimum specs for a base-level humanity install. Uh, what? Asked Shu. Oh, you know, man and woman, Ra explained. And immediately, man and woman appeared standing on the sand. The gods remained there, watching the cyclical pattern of human life, the ebb and flow, like the flooding of the Nile. Man and woman had little man and woman. Little man and woman grew bigger, while big man and woman grew smaller. As such... Little man and woman became big man and woman, and big man and woman became dead man and woman, their numbers increasing each round. They discovered hunting, agriculture, construction, winemaking, and more. To the gods, all this felt like a blink of the eye, and soon a powerful civilization was thriving. Ra turned to the others with a smirk. Look at these people. They were doing all right. He was proud of his little creations. I mean, wine, embalming. They had figured out a lot of stuff in only a few thousand years. Then... Ra had an idea, and he began descending to the ground. What are you doing? Shu called out from above. Oh, I'm going to lead them, Ra said. You know, be a hands-on dad. I'm just going to slip on my human suit, go down there and be their pharaoh, a title that now exists because I said so, and then come back after a few millennia. No big deal, Ra shouted back as he touched down, and the transformation to human was complete. Uh, kind of a big deal, though. Tefnut the spitter chimed in. You just turn yourself into a human. Humans die. You you should really know that. You created humans and apparently the concept of death. One step ahead of you. I'll just turn back into my god self and we'll be good, Ra said. See? He shut his eyes and strained. And strained. And strained. Oh. Well, as you can see, I can't change back, Ra said. Kind of a massive oversight on my part. But we can... We can work with this. I guess I'm Pharaoh until death comes for me. I'll let you all know if I need you. Until then, places everyone, Ross said, and walked into the city, taking his place as the leader of the Egyptian people. Ra, unsurprisingly, did a great job as Pharaoh. Since he was Ra, he was able to live just a bit longer than the normal... 60 to 100 years humans usually live, and he ruled Egypt for thousands of years. During that time, the natural world and all the things he created, the ocean, the Nile, the wind, and the rain, all worked together so that there was no want, no lean years. The Nile flooded rhythmically and perfectly, and the time when Ra ruled over the people was spoken of as a golden age. But after thousands of years in the driver's seat, even Ra started to feel his age. He aged just a little more gracefully than his normal human subjects. And his bones were like silver, his flesh like gold, and his hair was blue, like lapis lazuli. Soon, he acknowledged that his time as pharaoh was coming to an end. Also, that he had inadvertently created Apophis, the serpent of evil, a being that sought to devour all that was good, and who could also infect the souls of people. You did what? Shu asked the Asian Ra, after the pharaoh had called all of his god creations together for a meeting. It was a huge oversight on my part, I admit, Ra said, addressing the crowd. He grew out of the vapors of the darkness 
and he's been turning people against me. It's actually a big problem. I guess I should have been more explicit when I was creating stuff, because apparently bad stuff is mixed in with all the good stuff. So that's why I've asked you all here. As you can see, the serpent of darkness has infected the souls of men and women all around Egypt. Now, with my eye being the sun, I can turn it on portions of the earth and incinerate all the humans. Thoughts? Geb raised his hand and respectfully pointed out that he was actually the earth. And it wouldn't just get rid of humans, but render all existence a heaping, smoking nothingness. Rod nodded. Good point. See, that's why we have these meetings, guys. New plan. Instead of the whole world-ending option, how about I just send Sekhmet against mankind instead? Immediately, another woman appeared before the group. Like Tefna the Spitter, she had a lion's head with a human body. She carried two long, sharp knives and didn't wait for Ra to ask anything of her. She knew what she had been created to do. And with that, she jumped from the window and onto the streets. Screams arose as Sekhmet hunted down the wicked, and soon the Nile ran red with blood. And, to give some context, she wasn't killing people in the Nile. There was so much death in the city that the blood flowed through it. The gods watched for a few hours as Sekhmet hunted down and killed everyone who had the serpent of darkness in their soul. Then, panting and covered in the blood of thousands, Sekhmet stood in the city center. All right, Sekhmet, Ra yelled down. That's enough. I think you got everyone. You can come up here and cease to exist or something. I haven't really thought that far ahead. Sekhmet? Sekhmet had experienced the thrill of the hunt. She had tasted the blood of humans. Sure, the most wicked among them had been purged. But did that mean the others were innocent? Weren't they all kind of wicked? At least a little? She licked her lips. The philosophical arguments aside, she really just wanted to get back to killing stuff. She dove on top of the nearest bystander and tore him to pieces. As his creation jumped from person to person, Ra yelled down in vain. When she was done there, she fled from the city and hid among the rocks at night, waiting until the next day when she could resume her hunt. Wow, that's kind of an interesting metaphor for any creative work, Shu pondered aloud. Once it's out in the public sphere, you lose all control over it, and it takes on a life of its own. Yeah, it's also really annoying, Ra said. <sighs> Who would have thought creation would be so difficult? All right, everyone, how do we solve this problem? After a few hours, their brainstorming whiteboard remained bare, until Ra snapped his fingers and came up with the idea that would save them all. Beer, Ra yelled, and the concept of beer came into existence. If you're suspicious of a solution that involves way too much beer, well, you should be. We'll see how it all ends up right after this. The gods were crouched behind a large rock, really hoping this would work. While they were at work making the first microbrewery ever and dyeing all the beer red, Sekhmet had been at work, slaughtering whole villages just for the thrill of what cannot remotely be called a hunt. Ra had servants pour out the deep red beer in a rocky basin by where they knew the lioness was sleeping. The sun rose, and so did Sekhmet, coming out of her cave and stretching in the light. Then, she caught the smell of something. She looked around and saw the basin of beer. But since beer hadn't existed until two weeks ago, and this was a red liquid that appeared to come from one of the villages she had aided in discovering their mortality, this had to be blood. She shrugged 
A basin of blood was all part of a balanced breakfast for your average lying god monster. She started lapping up the liquid. And it was great blood, not too bitter and not too hoppy because hops didn't enter the brewing process for another 3,000 years. By the time that she thought this might be a trick, her head was already swimming from the alcohol. So she just kept going. When she felt like she had enough, slash was feeling a little iffy after the equivalent of 30 beers at 7 in the morning, she stood from the basin, took about three steps, and passed out there on the rocks. Ra and the others cautiously arose from the rocks to see the fearful Sekhmet sleeping it off in the sun. We should check the blood alcohol content of this basin. Am I right, guys? Get it? Ra quipped as they walked toward the sleeping lioness god monster. He saw many eye rolls around him. All right, I get it. Not the time or place. I'll just start making sure she doesn't kill again. Ra bent down and whispered into her lion ear. No one could hear what Ra was saying, but they saw the effects. She transformed from part lioness to take the form of a human woman. Ra stood and patted her on the back. With a smile, the old pharaoh began to hobble away. Shu asked him what he had done, and he replied that he had changed her name. She was no longer Sekhmet the Slayer, but Hathor, the Lady of Love. She now had an even stronger power over humans. Hers was no longer the power of hate, but of love. Love now existed, and thus she would claim more victims than she could ever hope for as Sekhmet the Slayer. Also, he told her that hangovers now exist, so sorry about that. One symptom of the evil presented by the Serpent of Darkness being solved, and a solution that resulted in way more death than the Serpent's Darkness also being solved, Ra decided to chalk this up as a win. As the aging pharaoh relaxed on his throne, he noticed a guy standing next to him. And who are you? Ra asked. Thoth, the man replied. I'm a magician. Thoth? Like, sauce? Asked Ra. No, Thoth. T-H-O-T-H, the being replied. God of wisdom and magic? You created me when you spoke my name at the beginning of everything? Not, not really ringing any bells, Ra said. But I also accidentally created the serpent of darkness. So, I suppose anything is possible. Oh, that's, you know, hurtful, Thoth said. Ra shrugged. So, what can I help you with, Thoth? Ra asked the god who remained awkwardly hanging around his throne. Well, I have a prophecy for you. I do that in addition to magic. It's all kind of wrapped up in the same thing, but anyway. If not, you remember her, right? Goddess of the sky, lady of heaven. Ra nodded. Well, Thoth continued, if Nut bears a son... He will one day rule Egypt. What? Ra said, spinning around. Thoth shrugged. That was the prophecy. Well, I can solve that, Ra said, slamming his fist down on the throne. Nut's never going to have kids. Um, with all due respect, Pharaoh, Thoth added, you've said, like, a lot. How you're getting old and won't be able to rule forever. Nut's kid, that doesn't sound like a bad option. I don't see how this is a problem. Well, it is, Ra barked, now unavoidably confronted with his own mortality, and reiterated his command. No babies for Nut. I'm cursing her. So that's final. She won't give birth to a child any day of the year or any night of the year. You know how this works. Anything I decree cannot be altered. When Nut heard the prophecy and the subsequent decree from Ra, she broke down. But since Thoth had uttered the prophecy, Thoth knew the loopholes. The only thing he demanded was her love. She sneered. Oh, really? That's sketchy. Thoth shrugged. Yeah. Mythology. It's cool, though. 
If she didn't want to be able to have kids that would rule over Egypt, she didn't have to do anything she was uncomfortable with. Nut rolled her eyes. Afterward, Thoth went to the moon to start his plan. When it comes to gambling, don't gamble with magicians. Just don't. It's a very bad idea. Case in point, Thoth was doing so well against the moon that the moon, even with all of her moon money on the table, was still losing. Badly, she knew she had to put up something else, so she offered her very light. Thoth smiled and said that it would take five nights worth to match his bet. She put that on the table and lost. Thoth scooped up his winnings and left. If you're wondering, this is why the moon wanes until there is no moon. It's because she lost the light gambling with a sleazy magician. Thoth, possessing five extra nights worth of moonlight, wedged them in between already existing days, pushing the calendar from 360 days per year to 365. And thus, Nut had the nights where she could give birth. Nut became pregnant and conveniently gave birth on those five consecutive nights that year, giving birth to Osiris on the first day, Harmakis on the second, Set on the third, Isis on the fourth day, and Nephthys on the fifth. Ra should have been clued into the fact that something was up when, waking up after the first night, he heard from the sky, the Lord of all comes forth into the light. Ra went to see Nut, who told him that she had no idea what that meant, but now please excuse her, she needs to go jam nine months of gestation into about 12 hours. Because she's smart, Nut hid her children to have them brought up in secret. She didn't peg Ra's the child murdering type, but you can never be too sure. Even though Osiris and Isis were raised in Thebes by, formerly, a priest of Ra, Thoth the Magician popped in from time to time to teach them wisdom and secret lore, which is like the regular lore, but I guess harder to find and not on iTunes. The kids grew up, and Ra grew older, until the famed pharaoh merely sat on his throne, napping and drooling all day. To have an absentee pharaoh was bad for Egypt, so Isis, Nut's daughter, knew that she had to do something. Now, we don't go over this, but Ra created things because he knows their secret names. He was over everything because he alone had that power. Isis knew that for her brother, and yeah, husband, Osiris to become Pharaoh, she would need to find a way to learn Ra's secret name, and so have power over him. She couldn't create on her own, but she could form things another way. Ra, as I said, was not doing well at this point, and on his long walks throughout the day, a lot of spit would dribble from his mouth. One day, Isis waited in the tall reeds for him to pass and collected some of the moistened dirt, forming it into a hooded snake. Using her magic, she filled it with poison and hid the clay snake on the path Ra usually took. The next morning, when Ra's eye, aka the sun, hit the clay snake, it sprang to life. It was silent, and the aging Ra didn't know it was there until after it bit him and slithered away. Ra staggered backwards. It wasn't just the poison coursing through his very human veins, though that was absolutely happening, but the idea that there could be such a creature that existed without his knowledge. This was dark magic. So he called the gods together for help. One by one, they all said that they didn't know the answer. They couldn't help. Then, someone came in who was surprising to Ra. It was Isis. It was sort of an open secret that Nut had had children and that they were being raised in secret. Now, even Ra knew but now, here was Isis, standing beside Ra's bed. She said she couldn't save him, but she could bring him back. He would have to forever leave his human form. He could never be Ra the Pharaoh again, but he could be Ra the God forever. Ra wiped spit from his mouth. He knew this had been a long time coming, and that Nut's children, Isis and Osiris in particular, 
had something to do with it. Still, it needed to be done. He nodded, and Isis said that she just needed to know his secret name. It took him a pointlessly long time to spit out his secret name, but finally, he did. Isis laid her hands on her grandfather and said his secret name, which remains secret to this day. The poison burned and killed the human part of him, but Ra survived. He would live in the heavens, unable to return to Earth, but his eye would shine down on us every day. Anyway, in as peaceful of a transition as old man Ra would have allowed, Osiris and his sister Isis took the throne, and it was because of their particular marriage, and yeah, they were brother and sister and also married, that nearly every ancient Egyptian royal dynasty married within the family. Even though it was technically a golden age, Ra had kind of fallen asleep at the wheel, and now the kingdom was destroying itself. Literally, because the people engaged in cannibalism, Osiris and Isis immediately started making improvements with the invention of bread, which, no matter what your thoughts are on carbs, bread is way more guilt-free than cannibalism. Brother, Set yelled to Osiris, when the latter returned from his partying his way across the world, teaching different cultures about Egypt and their gods. Oh, hey, Set, how's it going? Who, who are all these people? Osiris asked, gesturing to the crowd around them. Oh, them, they're nobody. It's just me and 72 of my closest friends. Set replied, they're really heavily armed, Osiris noted. Yeah, that's, that's just their hobby, to see how much deadly stuff they can heap on their bodies. Don't, don't think too much about it. Hey, we had an idea. You see, you, me, these 72 guys you don't know, dinner, tonight, in your honor, Set offered, and studied his brother's face. Uh, of course, Osiris beamed. Who else would I want to have dinner with than my completely trustworthy brother and his 72 scary friends? That night at dinner, Set announced that he had gifts for his guests, but it was only to be given to the attendee for whom it fit. It was a giant box, and everyone lined up to see who fit inside the box. After about five people, a winner was found. It was Osiris. All right, a free dinner, an Osiris-sized box, this is a good night, Osiris said as he found the box that he had won, which felt like it was built to his exact size from surreptitiously gathered measurements, fit like a glove. Wait, this feels like a coffin, Osiris noticed. Yes, brother, that's because it is. It's your coffin, Set yelled with no small degree of menacing stares. Well, yeah, I mean, I won it because it fits me, so it's my coffin, Osiris said. Yeah, Set said. Also because I'm going to trap you in it and bury you alive, making it your actual coffin. Wait, do you not understand what's happening? You know what? Whatever. Let's just get the lid on this thing before my brother figures out that I'm betraying him to become Pharaoh, said announced, motioning to one of his 72 friends to bring the lid. And Osiris did understand what was going on, just as the lid slammed down, was nailed shut, and the cracks filled with molten lead, because if you're going to betray a god, make sure you go that extra mile. You probably learned this from the King Arthur episodes. But if you're a monarch, and a conniving underling is amassing a heavily armed fighting force in your house, loyal only to them, you're probably in for some choppy waters ahead. Osiris was literally in choppy waters, as Set tossed the coffin into the Nile, and it floated out to sea. Isis, his sister, escaped into exile, and the hunt for Osiris' body was a long one. The coffin ended up in Syria, where a helpful tree grabbed it and grew around it. Then... Someone cut down the tree and somehow missed the coffin in the middle 
and then it was turned into a pillar, all without realizing that Osiris' body was inside. Isis, also, according to some versions, was pregnant, and after Horus, her son, was born, she hid him away on a floating island to be tutored so that she could search for the body of her brother-husband. Unless the proper rites were performed, he could never enter the land of the dead. Long story short, Isis followed the clues to Syria and found the pillar and the body. She made it home and was about to perform the funeral rites when Set, the murderer pharaoh, found where they were hiding the body of Osiris and tore it to pieces, scattering them all around Egypt. Isis and Horus escaped, but now they had to find 14 dad bits instead of just one. The crocodiles, the fish, and even Anubis, the son of Set and Nephsis, took pity on Isis as she searched for her husband. You might know Anubis as the wolf-headed psychopomp, or the being that ushers souls to the afterlife. Well, that's actually how he came to have his wolf head, to sniff out the pieces of Osiris. He transformed his own head and, I guess, really liked the look. Eventually, they found all the pieces, and, according to some sources, this was where Horus was conceived. Osiris, when he was put back together, had just enough life left in him to get together with his wife, which I can't imagine would be fun for anyone. Regardless, Osiris eventually died and was buried in either one place or 14 to protect against Set desecrating his tomb. Osiris awakened in the afterlife, and since things were still pretty new, they had a vacancy at the top, and Osiris became ruler of the underworld. The worthy dead would be added to his army of the blessed that would return to reign on earth after his last battle with Set. Set's wife, Nephsis, sat in a boat as she rode to the island. After Osiris died, Set set himself up as pharaoh, though that wasn't how things worked. Such a powerful position needed to be agreed upon by the council of the gods, with Set literally sitting on the throne and having his followers installed at every level of government, it was basically a formality at this point, if Isis and Horus hadn't come out of hiding. In the text, Set succeeds in killing the baby Horus, but the kid returns as a twice-resurrected bird, which, I'm guessing, is why he has a falcon head in the mythology. We're just going to blow past that, but he still has the falcon head. Everyone showed up at the meeting, and even though everyone hated Set, including his own wife, no one could really do anything about it. Isis made a great case for both Horus and herself, despite almost everyone agreeing no one could do anything. Set controlled everything, and his coup was complete. So, Set was surprised when he saw his wife in the boat, coming to the island, but he smiled. She had left in disgust, after he had killed their brother Osiris. But she was back. She knew that there was no escaping his power now. And he found that he was right. She withdrew from his touch at first. I have a favor to ask of you, Nephsis said. She wanted him to swear on an oath that her son would be Pharaoh when he came of age. Set cocked his head. Anubis? Yeah, of course. Maybe he'd even be out of his weird wolf head face by then. Now, where were we? He said to his wife. We were just about to have a whole lot of really strong wine, Nephsis said. An hour or so later, Set was asleep. The next day at the Council of the Gods, Set strolled in to officially accept his title as legitimate pharaoh. When Nephsis, his wife who was standing next to him, cleared her throat and reminded him, Oh, but yeah... First, I swear that this woman's son will be Pharaoh when he comes of age, Set said, pointing at his wife. He watched all the other gods in attendance stifle laughter before 
Thoth just lost it, pointing at Set's wife. Set turned around to see the woman he had been standing in front of was not his wife, but Isis. His wife emerged from behind a pillar. She had been in on it the whole time. She had given Isis some of her clothes and her headdress, and Isis had used magic for the rest. Yeah, Nephsis, his wife, still hated him. Isis had tricked him, and even with all of his power, he couldn't undo an oath sworn before the gods. Horus, the son of Isis and Osiris, would be the new pharaoh. Set spat curses at everyone in attendance, but they just laughed at him. An oath was an oath. Plus, we all hate you, so get out. Set, who could handle being reviled by his fellow gods and forcing his wife into being by his side if it meant he was all-powerful, wasn't so keen on it if he was nothing. He vowed your classic supervillain threats on Horus, Isis, and the others before escaping with his 72 angry buddies to the south of Egypt, where he would plot his revenge. As Isis held young Horus's hand, and they both watched the sunset, Isis knew that this peace was fragile and fleeting. One day, Set would return, and even though she had the will of the gods behind her, and her husband's undead underworld vengeance army, it still might not be enough. She looked down at Horus, a smile shining in both of his bird eyes. The poor kid didn't know the trials that lay ahead of him, but starting tomorrow, his training would begin. A war was coming for the very heart of Egypt, and he had to be ready. And that's where we're going to leave Egyptian mythology for now. We're getting into one of the central themes, the epic and sometimes deeply disturbing struggle between Horus and Set. Don't forget that we still have the Serpent of Darkness lurking out there, as well as many other stories to tell. Also, I want to say that there are a lot of different versions of a lot of these stories, and in the end, I just had to pick one and go with it. It was a mythology that spanned thousands of years. Also, part of the reason parts tend to be different or incomplete is because the ancient Egyptians believed that words had the power to affect reality. So, they would kind of gloss over overly negative stories, like the murder of Osiris. Next week, we're stopping off in the north with Norse mythology one last time before Ragnarok. Odin will meet a new friend. The first ever war will just be exhausting, and Odin will find an effective way to study by hanging upside down and bleeding to death. I want to say thanks to Denton83, Betty Butter, Pettengale, Huang92, Ali London, 1986, Elisina, Cloudy Wolf, Poopant, Lionheart 91, Lululu 84, and Flash Fist Fight 92 for the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so much. It's really great to hear from you and read the reviews, and I really appreciate the feedback. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is the best place, and it really does help the show. And you can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of 45 Carolina Reaper Seeds, the hottest pepper on the planet, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that won't take a long time to grow and then be very unpleasant to eat. Though, if you're eating the member episodes, you are absolutely consuming them the wrong way, and you should probably seek medical attention immediately. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership, or call 911 if you've accidentally eaten your smartphone. The creature this time is the Joint Eater from Irish folklore. You're only at risk of encountering the Joint Eater under a very specific set of circumstances. If you're walking through the Irish countryside and you decide to nap, you choose a place beside a stream, sleep with your mouth open, and then a newt hops in your mouth, well, then you're gonna have some problems with the Joint Eater. The Joint Eater is not actually the newt. 
but just a little invisible fairy that takes the form of a newt, and it doesn't eat your joints, either. It's called the joint eater, because it eats in conjunction with you. It'll sit in your stomach, eating around half of your food. People that are stuck with a joint eater just eat and eat and are never satisfied, but also never gain weight. The joint eater allowing just enough food to pass through the host to keep them alive. There is one way to get rid of the joint eater, however. Salty beef. Way too much salty beef. The more you eat, the more the creature eats, until, full of way too much salty meat, it just wants some water. That's when you go back to the stream where that sinister salamander adventured down your esophagus and go back to sleep. When it thinks it's safe to leave, and hearing the stream nearby, the joint eater will rush out for a drink. All you have to do is wake up at that very moment, and the newt will be too scared to return. Although, I feel like if you're such a heavy sleeper that a newt can crawl down your throat in the first place, you're pretty much always going to be stuck with a little guy. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Chris Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>